Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Greetings, everyone. It's Hugh again, Hugh Blue, founder and president of Center Vision Leadership Foundation. Our job is transforming leaders transforming organizations, transforming lives. And part of our transformational process is learning about things that are going to be helpful in our work, changing people's lives, impacting people's lives. And we have a very special guest today. I don't even want to get into it. I don't even want to get into it. So, so Jason, tell us a little bit about you and your background and what's this thing, Carrot, that you founded? Absolutely. My, my name is Jason Morgan. I'm the founder of Carrot. Um, I am originally from Richmond, Virginia, uh, and uh, I I grew up there. It's my it's 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 where I started. Um, and then I went to college in uh, in in Ch- Chicago. I went to graduate school in Chicago. Um, and since then, I have moved out to Santa Monica. So I'm calling in from California, which is now my home. Um, and I, it, my story is really the story of a lot of different entrepreneurs. I had an early native curiosity in something and I turned it into a business. Uh, while I was in graduate school, I started studying this convergence between uh, economics and behavioral sciences and what was now called game theory. And so I became very interested in kind of what motivates people to do things. Uh, I also had kind of a bent towards social enterprise and philanthropy and doing good in the world. Um, and as a result, I started a company early on. Um, I was lucky enough to be part of an exit uh, whereby we sold that company off uh, to another entity. And as a result, I had some capacity, some time to really kind of invest in things that, that I was more interested in. And so I went to work for a foundation And at that foundation, we started to experiment with different ways to offer prizes and competitions to compel people to solve big problems. Um, I set up a lab at MIT in 2007 uh, to study how prize competitions work. And following that, I ended up starting my own company, which is Carrot.net. And today we're the market leader in providing innovation competitions, open sourcing platforms, and philanthropic prizes to some of the leading sponsors around the world. That's intriguing. Now, I, I went and snooped around your website, and I'll give people a link in a little bit, and it's on the webpage. You go to the, T-H-E, the nonprofitexchange.org, gives you the rundown. You click on view the episodes. It'll take you to this page, and you'll see Carrot logo, and you'll click on that page, and it gives you the information about Jason and his work, and then the link to his website. We'll, we'll give it to you later here. But people are listening to this on a podcast at any time, uh, Jason. They're watching it on on a live video, um, and they're watching on a re-record video on your website. And, and the the messages that you're communicating are: these are projects you've been working on for a while, and I assume just fine tuning them for the 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 nuances in the culture. But you, part of what I read about, um, you were responsible for helping the McAllister award a single hundred million dollar grant that's a pretty big deal so talk about talk about that you're not in the spotlight you were sort of behind the the scenes so tell us a little bit about that process and why is that so important for people to know 
Yeah, I mean, when, when you go to our website, you can look at many different case studies. Um, at the end of the day, Carrot is a service business. So if you look at our competitors in our field, some of those businesses are really, they exist kind of as a social platform where they're kind of activating their own brand, their own presence, and their clients come in and they rent out what we call pavilions, where they're trying to get access to innovators and they're trying to solve a problem. At Carrot, we take the opposite approach. So at Carrot, we kind of hide behind our clients. We activate their brand or their cause. And so when you look at the case studies on our website, some of them are going to be very recognizable. Uh, and you really wouldn't know Carrot was involved unless you went to that site and you sought technical assistance or you registered to compete and then entered into our domain, our software platform. So we're a service business at the end of the day. And if you looked at the range of different case studies that we showcase on our site, you'll see that there's a lot of different types. Now, the one that gets a lot of the press is this program that we named called 100 and Change. And 100, saw, 100 and Change sought to give away a single $100 million grant. It was sponsored by the MacArthur Foundation out of Chicago. And what they were looking at was a way to kind of experiment with new ways of grant making. Um, if you look at traditional grant making and philanthropy, um, my perspective is that a lot of it is very opaque. You really, it's very hard to understand the preferences and biases of a foundation. Oftentimes you need to know a program officer that works there. A lot of times people that go through the grant writing process have to hire professionals. And what we are trying to do is really level the playing field, make the experience more open, transparent, and fair, and make sure that everyone who participated, even if they didn't win the grant, uh, would get some form of value that was commensurate with their level of effort. So it was really a much bigger and more ambitious program, notwithstanding the fact that it was the largest single competition that had ever been run, we really looked at it through the lens of trying to make sure that all the people that enrolled and started to work on the application forms could connect with one another, they could get feedback from professionals, um, and a lot of those aspects of the program were key drivers for getting people to participate. And these themes I'm mentioning, like openness, transparentness, fairness, accountability, uh, rigor, all of that is kind of the reason for being for Carrot. Uh, our goal was really to kind of reinvent philanthropy, grant make it, and asset allocation to make sure that we're looking at it again from the perspective of the person seeking those resources to make sure it's a value-added experience for them. That's amazing. So carrot, that makes me think of Bugs Bunny. It's the orange thing we eat. What was the inspiration to use that word for carrot.net? Well, a lot of what we do is based around theories of incentives, right? What motivates people? And if you wanted to find a single object that represented an incentive, it would be a carrot, right? And if, if, if you look at our logo, it's a very abstract vision of a carrot at the end of a stick. Um, now, we don't really lead with this kind of cartoonish kind of Bugs Bunny uh, look and feel when it comes to our brand. Uh, we really want it to be um, cleaner and we want it to really kind of hide behind these motives. So, so, so a lot of what we do is offering compelling incentives, but also making sure that those incentives aren't some winner take all proposition. So the notion of the carrot, like people get incentivized, they get motivated to participate, means a lot more to us and a lot more to people today than it did in the past. I, I we deal with lots of nonprofits all over the place. And the, the constant struggle is, I'm going to write a grant and get all this money. Well, maybe you're going to get the money. It's a win-lose. It's, it's, it's pretty hard and fast. And you never know whether they're going to pick up one thing they don't like and just 
put your put your your application aside. So I, I want to ask you about the, some a couple other examples. You mentioned the MacArthur, but before we do that, talk about the win-win-win because grant making is a problem. It's been broken, and we know that many many grant makers have lots of money, but they're not going to fund anybody that isn't valuable, isn't going to accomplish a common mission. So talk about the win-win-win that you've created for the grant maker and the nonprofit and the people they serve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you lined up 100 program officers from the world's leading foundations and you surveyed them and said, would you like grant making to be more fair? Uh, would you like to offer a more level playing field? Would you like to attract the kind of people that don't ordinarily respond to a request for proposal or a solicitation for a grant application? I believe that 90% of them would say yes. Uh, the issue is that that's a very hard job to accomplish. If you start opening up the door and you allow pretty much anyone to walk in to provide their best ideas, then you're presented with the semantics of how you would assess and sort and rank and stack all of that content efficiently and effectively. And that's not an easy job. As a matter of fact, this is the problem that has plagued philanthropy, grant making, and also venture capital and private equity for a very long time. And as a result, philanthropists often start shutting down uh, certain things. And so there isn't you know, a form that anyone can go to to read to understand what they have to do to compete. There isn't a rubric that people can often find which expresses the preferences and biases of the decision makers, right? How that application and rubric get combined and how those scores get tabulated, oftentimes that sits in a black box. And so as a result, you have a lot of people that instead of making it a more open process, will go out and hire a program officer and say, you go out and you find the grantees that we need to support. And that is a very closed network that represents only a small fraction of what they can otherwise access. Now at Carrot, we are experts in this, right? And so we not only write those application forms and there's both an art and a science to that, we also publish all that information on a public website. And so anybody can go there, they can see exactly what's required of them, what that implied cost is and what the related benefits are to participating. And sometimes those benefits are just structured feedback. Sometimes it's, you know, we have a, at the kernel of our software, we have a normalization protocol, which means that if you apply for a grant through our systems, you're gonna get judged by five other people and they may be peers or they may be experts, but at the end of the day, we mathematically rescale all those scores, scores against different measures of distribution to make sure no matter which judges you're assigned, whether they're easy graders or hard graders, you're gonna get an equal treatment. And there's a very complex way that we do that. We also describe that on every website. So while it looks like kind of operationally a very sound and scientifically rigorous way to operate, when you see people reading those sites, they, they start to realize, oh my gosh, not only is it a level playing field, but I'm also gonna get comments from the people that are scoring me. And if those people are peers, other people competing for the same grant, then I'm gonna get a chance to connect to them. And so there's a lot that goes into this, which is around building community of practice and sharing information and making sure at the end of the day that we have the best and the brightest applicants, but that the whole stack, everyone else who applies and goes through this experience, they get to meet other folks, they get feedback from peers or professionals, and they get to walk away with a much better notion of, of, of why they maybe didn't win the grant. 
So there's, a, is there um, a learning experience? This, in, in my experience also, I find a lot of nonprofits aren't fundable yet because they don't have some of the high-performing board. They don't have proof of concept that they can actually do the work and there's been impact. So those that apply and don't get scored very well, is there, is there a way for them to up their game so they can come back in a, in a more robust way? Yeah, there is. I mean, every competition is different. And that's why we have 40 different case studies on our website for people to see. Some of our, um, some of our clients will come to us and say, listen, we want some early stage ideation. We want the raw concepts that we can harvest by going out to the world and saying, hey, give us your best new approach for solving X, right? And in those cases, we're really trying to bring in folks that are maybe um, early in their thought. Uh, and then other folks will come to us and they'll say, we want more mature scaling ventures. And so every competition is different. What we don't want to do is we don't want to waste the time of people that are working on the front lines around any particular cause. So oftentimes on these same websites, we'll put up what we call an organizational readiness test so that people can take a quick quiz. And instead of having to read through all the eligibility requirements and the terms and conditions, they can say, hey, am I appropriate for this? Am I ready to do this? And so they don't have to jump wholeheartedly into it. They can first kind of read through all the requirements. They can take the quiz. Uh, they, can, they can start reverse engineering the scoring process to see if they've got the right approach. And so really it, it's about that kind of transparency, which informs those groups even before they've registered to participate. That's, that's huge. That is huge. That There's so many... Um, smaller nonprofits spend a lot of resources, a lot of time and effort writing a grant, and they don't make it, and they don't know why. It's it's like I had a girlfriend in high school that, that got mad at me, and she wouldn't tell me why. <laughs> you know, it's the mystery. So we haven't learned anything. We haven't gotten any better. It sounds like um, I love talking to people like you who are profound entrepreneurs. You see a problem, and you find a solution, and you put people together. That's what we do. We see, we see a problem and we solve it for people. So in I want to ask you about some of the case studies, but there, there's a learning for this, for the nonprofit. What has there, has there been a learning for some of the corporations you work with or the foundations you work with rather that they've learned how to do things better? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the great things that we are able to deliver is this idea of bringing in more diverse uh, input, right? So that we can say, Listen, if you run a traditional government RFP, you're usually going to get the same old folks. Um, when we do this, we bring in people from different domains, different disciplines, people trying to solve problems using different tools. Uh, NASA came to us and they said, we need to replace the particle sensor on the International Space Station. Now we can go out and we can hire a firm to do this, or we can run a competition in which we would get breadboard concepts and blueprints from people all over the world and we'll build a community that we can tap into later if we need it, but we'll also be able to kind of rank out the best, the best ideas that we can then develop further with their assistance. Now, when you take this approach, um, you're often getting people who maybe are experts in particle sensing. Uh, maybe they have a very specific expertise in chemistry or biology, but what we find is that often you're bringing in people that maybe are studying predictive analytics, right, or machine learning, people that are applying new disciplines to solve the same problem. And it's in that diversity that you increase the rate at which these problems get solved. Um, there is a researcher at the Harvard Business School, his name is Kareem Lakani. 
And he wrote a paper that was published, I think in 2009. Um, and it looked at um, the people that were winning some of the biggest competitions at the time. And what he had done is he ran an experiment in which he asked people to identify their area of expertise when they registered to compete. And then they asked those people to determine how far they thought their expertise was from the target domain of the competition. So just as I said, if it's a chemistry problem, you're gonna get chemists, you're gonna get biologists, you're gonna get drug pathologists. But when you start opening up the gate, all of a sudden you get people from fields that you never would have expected. And what we found is that the people that were more likely to win the most entrenched problems were usually six degrees or more separated from the target domain. Now, how do you convince a woman working in machine learning or predictive analytics in Sydney, Australia, to all of a sudden stop and turn her attention to a chemistry problem? Well, the only real tactic for achieving that is to make sure that she's aware that she's playing on a level field and that the game isn't rigged against her. And once you can offer that kind of level playing field, that experience, um, you start to gather new talent. You start to attract people that you never would have otherwise found. And that is the key to innovation. That's how we speed up problem solving. And that's what we've learned over the last 11 years. And we have dozens and dozens of case studies where people that have emerged from nowhere, people you never would have thought would have been able to solve a problem, all of a sudden are awarded a big check or a contract. And that doesn't exist only in the for-profit sector because we, we have people in our community that are doing high-tech things for the benefit of people who can't afford it. And so we might think well, that's only a business model for a for-profit greed, your bottom line greed, which isn't necessarily greed, but you know, it's, it's how do we stimulate the economy by doing good, which really philanthropy has many, many aspects to it. But let me go back to hone in a little deeper on the, the private foundations, the ones that fund the 501c3 sector, and they want to fund projects that further what they want to see happen. Now, I've been in conversations with thought leaders, and many represent uh, foundations that are inside, and what I've learned from them is there's a lot of money, and, and they're not going to award it unless there's a worthy cause. So a lot of the money has not been awarded. And I think what you've addressed is a system that hasn't been functional on a level that, can, that it could actually be. So in those cases, um, where have you bridged the gap? There's a lot of nonprofits that have really good programs, but they don't know how to bridge the gap and even have that conversation with the foundations. Am I, am I opening something that's just useful for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we work in three different sectors. We're in commercial Fortune 100 companies, uh, big companies like Johnson & Johnson, where we're doing kind of more trial-based competitions. We work in government and we work in philanthropy. If you look at the range of our clients, you certainly have the big ones, right? The big bet philanthropists. Now, a single $100 million prize for the MacArthur Foundation is important uh, because it, it, it shows the rest of the world that this can be done in a scalable way and this can be done in a more open, transparent, and fair way. Behind that, we've done a $90 million competition for the Kellogg Foundation around racial equity. We've done a $40 million competition around gender equity in the United States sponsored by Melinda Gates, uh, McKenzie, Scott Bezos, and Stacey Schusterman. Um, we are doing a prize right now on how to improve the voting process in America for the CTO of Facebook that's offering $12 million. So we're getting kind of the top layer of all the philanthropists that want to make what we call a big bet. Now, that's great. 
And we love that work and it generates a lot of exposure for us once people learn that we're the company behind the process. But you'll also see that we work with a lot of community-based foundations. We work with foundations like the Arizona Community Foundation, which is working on water drought and scarcity in their state. Uh, we've worked in cities like Greensboro, Hartford, Las Vegas. Uh, we've done stuff here in the city of Los Angeles around homelessness. And while we love the big work, oftentimes when you get into these local conditions, these local causes, you can actually be a lot more authentic and specific about the kind of call to action that, that, that we develop for those clients. So you'll see some of the local work in contrast to the summer bigger national, international work that we do. And of course, for NASA, we do highly technical work, uh, not just here on the planet, but you know, uh, uh, on other planets too. We actually have a project for the Mars landing mission right now on how to turn astronaut breath into glucose so that they can sustain life on the surface of that planet. So we're working all over the place and we're working big, small, local and global. So there's 1.6 million nonprofits, 501c3s. That's not counting religious institutions and education and community groups like community foundations or chambers of commerce. So there's a whole lot of, of organizations out that. Do you, so does any of this, before we go there, um, you've used the word competition and prize. And that's not really clear in my mind. It might be my age and mental condition, but <laughs> define what competition and prize, how does that work in your context? Absolutely. Um, so the term has evolved. Um, I did a TED talk about the earliest prizes for innovation. And the first case studies we found were in the mid 1500s. So for a long time, what would happen in around the world, particularly in Western Europe, is that people would want to solve a problem. And so they would put up what we might call a bounty, call it an, a, a reward. They'd say for 10,000 ducats, if you can solve this problem, it doesn't matter where you went to school, who you knew, who you know, you would win both fame and fortune. And this was a way to kind of democratize the problem solving process. And this occurred for about 500 years. We have all these different case studies throughout Western history that talk about how this reward system could be used as a kind of fair, open, free market exchange to bring in people to solve big problems. And there's a lot of really cool case studies that I can get into for you. Now, as the internet started to come online and as we started to see the effect of social media, we kind of began reinventing this prize model. Now, there were some early players like the X Prize Foundation, where I used to be the head of prize design, where we would offer these bounties, say for $10 million, if you could put a rocket into outer space you would win the prize, but you had to demonstrate success first, right? And what would happen is you would push the cost to accomplish that goal onto the competing teams. They would spend their own time and resources. They would get a lot of exposure, right? And media as a result of competing for this prize. And the winner would win the prize, but they would also get a lot of attention. And oftentimes they could leverage that attention and that capital to go on to build new companies, to go on and build new interests. And this is the kind of way that we looked at prizes for a long time. As the term has evolved now, we're using the same approach of more open, transparent, fair competition to really eat into what we consider more traditional grant make it asset allocation, uh, request for proposals, government procurement. And so you're seeing a lot more about uh, prize organizations taking market share away from traditional government procurement. Uh, there was a study written by McKenzie 
uh, that was looking at the size of the marketplace, I think in 2010, and they were saying that it equal to about $350 million back then in terms of prizes and awards and the total value of those programs. But the rate at which that was increasing was about 18% a year. And so if you extrapolate that to today, you're looking at well over $800 million in prizes out there. But if you talk to the World Bank, they would tell you that government procurement writ large represents about a $9.5 trillion market as of March of 2020. So the, the opportunity for an organization like mine to come in and try and reinvent how government agencies allocate their resources is much greater than what looks like kind of a niche marketplace, which would be the prize world. Do projects that have corporate nonprofit partnership or public-private partnership, do those get any, um, any more, or they get favorable, more favorable results? I, it depends on what you're trying to achieve, right? I mean, there are, if you look at like open innovation, there are certain sectors that are heavily regulated where it's very hard to bring in new players, right? Like if you look at kind of education and healthcare, oftentimes we forget that the buyers are not the patients, they're not the students, the buyers are the school districts in that equation. And so trying to get a school district to change by offering some novel prize competition is very difficult. Now we've seen it at the national level uh, when Arnie Duncan was the head of the US Department of Education and they had the race to the top program. We've seen the federal government challenge local school districts to change based on a competition model, but mostly uh, trying to affect change from the outside uh, as a private organization. When you're looking at school district budgets that measure in the hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a hard lever to pull. And so as a result, a lot of the competitions that we run that affect that are designed to affect that change look to public-private partnerships. We're trying to get people that are already embedded with those partners to try and propose new ways of doing what they do so that the agent, the agency really rests in the private partner who's already got the public partner, you know, side by side. And in doing that, you're not necessarily inducing new activity. Sometimes you're just harvesting great partnerships that are out there and you're shining a light on them and you're helping them to scale with whatever resources you can offer. So public-private partnerships are very important, uh, but the public part is often harder to change uh, because of the size of it and the nature of it. Well, you're familiar with Lynchburg, Virginia, where Center Vision is located. And this, this city before the Civil War was the second wealthiest city in the country. Right now, Lynchburg has almost 25% of people. That's before the pandemic. I don't know what it is now, but below the poverty line. And in the 01 zip code, where Fort Early is, it's, it's 41%. But we don't have a lot of collaboration there. So would uh, if, if a group got together and said, we could address poverty, moving to prosperity, um, then if they go to your website, let's, let me show, let me, for people watching, carrot.com, I'm thinking, carrot.net, excuse me, that's what I meant to say. So just say to you're paying attention. So it says at the top of this website, um, um, where does it say you can schedule an appointment up there? Absolutely. So when you, what else should people look for and who should go here? Who should go and, and check out what you're talking about? Well, if you scroll down, you'll see that we work with uh, both um, government, nonprofit and corporate, right? And when we say nonprofit, oftentimes those are grant makers. Um, the competition model 
is really just about more efficient asset allocation. So if you are a government agency that's mandated to give away a grant and you want a faster, better, more effective way of doing it, if you're a nonprofit that has a mission and you have an endowment, a corpus, and you want to allocate grants or you want to provide programmatic support in some way, we are the process that allows you to achieve better outcomes. And of course, corporations really look to open sourcing and crowdsourcing now because the old saying is, you know, the smartest people don't work for you. The smartest people are somewhere else. And so by taking a more open approach, you can access, you can tap in to folks that you otherwise wouldn't be being able to find. Um, you know, it is true. My parents live in Lynchburg. I've been spent a lot of time in Lynchburg. Um, and, and I want to tell you a little bit about um, my company and, and the approach that we took um, about nine years ago. So we have offices in Seattle, Los Angeles, Nashville, and Bulgaria. And um, I remember going to Nashville, which at the time was a hub for our software team. And I was looking at the people that were working for us there and they all had on headphones um, and they were all working in cubicles. And I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. People should be doing this from home. Uh, this is not how we innovate as a company. People were having to drive long distances just to sit in a cubicle, do their work, and then drive home to be with their families. Our work is very project-based. And so we went to a fully distributed model a long time ago. Everybody in our company works from home and we still maintain hubs in those cities that I mentioned where people can come and they can meet and they can have team building exercises. But I think the world is changing, right? And we never know what comes next. But the idea of more distributed models of operation, the idea that I can live in Lynchburg but have a job in California, the idea that I can live in DC and have an office in Lynchburg and in, in, in my garage or in my bedroom, that is now possible. And so if we, if we think of the future of work and kind of our experience as a business, I think you're going to see more and more of that. And I think it's going to change some of the fabric of some of the cities that have been operating in the same way for a very long time. And, you know, whether or not we want to accelerate that or whether we want to shine a brighter light on that is a different question. But we know it's happening. We know it's happening around the world. Uh, and we know that it's providing new opportunities for people. And we, we figured out which meetings we could have had on email anyway. And, you know, you're, that's such a practical approach that could apply to most industries because we do spend a lot of time in useless activities that are not productive. So what I'm, I'm picking up from the whole context of what you're offering here is how do we be more effective and efficient in the use of all those resources, those God-given resources that we're stewards over? And, 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 you know, uh, Jay, we've been more wasteful in the past. We can't afford that anymore. So methodologies like you're introducing are crucial to the health of, of all our nonprofits and our communities. Now, you're, you said you celebrated 10 years of this company? I, we are 11 years old. We, I founded the company in 2010. So what's the next 10 years? What's it going to look like in 10 more years? Or do you know? Well, Carrot uh, is, a, is a social enterprise. And so we really, from the very start, wanted to focus on public causes, working with philanthropists and government agencies. Uh, but, you know, as someone who started two different companies, um, you know, it's been my experience that maybe one of the places where we also need to break through some barriers is in how uh, business owners raise funds uh, to support and scale their, their companies. Um, you know, if you look at the world of venture capital and private equity and, and, and investment banking, Oftentimes, people are presented with the exact same problems that philanthropists and grant makers are presented with. 
It's very hard to go out and raise a round of money because you don't necessarily know what those investors really want from you. And so there's a lot of guessing, there's a lot of inefficiency. Um, and as we look at the best and brightest companies, oftentimes, if they're located in a place like Lynchburg, they can't access funding in Silicon Valley or here in Silicon Beach in Los Angeles because it's not a level playing field. And so we're really trying to focus on that as well, the kind of the commercial application of how we run these competitions to source and select opportunities for our clients, which maybe not only represent triple bottom line social returns, but that focus on more commercial aspects of their investment strategy. And so again, I, I say it, I use those three words a lot, open, transparent, fair. I mean, how do you make that experience such uh, that people can access different resources from around the world? And I think what I like about our business is it's very bipartisan. You know, all of us as Americans have this kernel, this plant in the back of our head about democracy and meritocracy. And if you're online today, you know that this is the new normal, uh, being accountable for what you say you're right and trying to put people out there and trying to make sure that when you enter into a platform, you have an opportunity to communicate with others. Now, there's been a lot of different, you know, criticism and effect as a result of that. But the, the people that are growing up today have a native assumption that when they enter into an exchange, there's going to be a lot more openness. Uh, there's going to be a lot more diversity. There's going to be a lot more, um, there's going to be a lot more community. And, and so that is what another ethos that we're tapping into uh, as we start to build communities around these competitions. Those are foundational principles that Center Vision teaches. You'll be happy to know that, you know, we've got to have, you got to have those kinds of principles to be effective in any, any, any age. And so um, Jay Morgan, is there, um, this is a great interview and I'm going to encourage people to go to carrot.net, look at what you have to offer and see where they fit in and see if you can rally up people in your neighborhood to pull a project together because there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done and we got the goods and what's missing is, is the connectiveness that you offer. How do you take people that have money? Money isn't going to solve the problem unless you're ready. And so that 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 assessment piece you talked about is absolutely gold for, for nonprofits. That's just kind of, it's, it's being transparent. And we need to be transparent as leaders to listen and, and understand what it is we need to do for our part to, to come to the table as, as a valid partner in this. So what, what, uh, what do you want to leave people with today? What's a closing challenge or tip or thought that you have for nonprofit leaders and clergy that make up our audience? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, they, we put so much on the table. You know, I, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, and um, I grew up in a place where uh, diversity uh, was a question of reparation, paying for the sins of our past and our fathers. And, and, and I think the conversation somehow has been too skewed towards this notion of diversity somehow connecting to inequity. Um, what we've proven and what many other folks have proven is that we need to start looking at diversity as a business tool. We need to start thinking about getting outside of whatever notion we have of the past and saying, when I can offer more variety, uh, when I can offer new ways of thinking on how to solve problems, those problems get solved faster, right? Now, I'm not here to say that reparate, the conversation around reparation through diversity uh, is unimportant. I think it's very important. 
But what I'm here to say is that if you're a CEO or if you're running a foundation, you need to embrace diversity. You need to embrace inclusion and equity because that is how you solve problems today. Now, 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 if you think that you can get all the talent you need there in Lynchburg and you can hire folks that are local that can do what you want, that's fantastic. You should continue doing that. But if you want to tap into the mind hive, which, re which is represented by the internet and people all over the world of different colors, creeds, races, religions look, that look different than you, that is how you solve problems faster. And, and we believe in that principle. We demonstrate that every day. Uh, and it's part of our reason for being. You heard it here. This is a call to action. Um, Jay Morgan, founder uh, and, and president, I guess, of Carrot.net. It's a fresh approach to solving old problems and giving people a, an equal leg to stand on in transparency. I think this is just great. It's a good leadership model to follow what you've done. So thank you for being our guest today on the Nonprofit Exchange. Thank you so much, Hugh. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>